0: I'm reading from Zechariah 14, page 674 in the church Bibles. Um, If you need a Bible, please raise your hand and the ushers will give you one. All right, Zechariah 14, titled, The Lord Comes and Reigns. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azil. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness it will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. The whole land from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up high from the Benjamin Gate to the site of the First Gate, to the Corner Gate, and from the Tower of Hananel to the Royal Wine Presses, and will remain in its place. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Judah too will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected. Great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camps. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. On that day, holy to the Lord, will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar, Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty, and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will be no longer there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty.
1: In October 1997. NASA launched a mission to study the planet Saturn with um, a probe called Cassini. And 19 years later, um, about a year ago, they launched the final phase of the mission called the Grand Finale. Basically, they got the probe to do more and more risky kind of things, more and more risky passes uh, of orbits of the planet Saturn passing between the rings and the planet itself. And they did this so that they could get more and more information on the planet as they got closer and closer. And then nine days ago actually, the final mission of Cassini was to capture data as it crashed into the atmosphere of Saturn and burned up. Now this is a little bit like what's been happening as we've been studying the book of Zechariah. Not so much the crashing and burning bit, though there may have been a little bit of that, but it's a bit like Zechariah because the book has been circling, orbiting This question of when God will return to live with his people. And in the first half of the book, God made it very clear that first they needed to rebuild the temple, if you remember, and then after that God would return. But then in the second half of the book of Zechariah, we've seen the grand finale phase begin. It's like Zechariah started some risky passes, getting closer and closer, seeing things in greater and greater detail. And we've been seeing in the second half of the book of Zechariah, God explaining to his people that it wasn't going to be as simple as rebuild the temple and then it would all come together. As important as rebuilding the temple was, the path to God returning to live with his people was going to be far more epic, far more costly and complicated and messy than anything they could have imagined. And with each risky pass in the second half of Zechariah, they were given a preview of the journey ahead with greater and greater clarity. So in chapter 9, you might remember, we saw a lowly king coming on a donkey. In chapter 10, we saw an epic battle. In chapter 11, we saw a rejected shepherd valued at 30 pieces of silver. And in chapter 12, we saw God pierced by his own people. And then in chapter 13... We saw a fountain opened for their cleansing. Zechariah is orbiting around this idea of of when God will return to live with his people. And it's become absolutely clear that God's return is centered on something that Zechariah simply calls that day. Zechariah says over and over again, on that day. Last week he said on that day nine times in two chapters. Today he says it seven times in just the one chapter. Today, we've come to Zechariah's very last orbit and in this final phase of his mission, he brings us closer than ever to this final day, that day when God comes to live again with his people. And as Zechariah comes rushing to an end, the very final transmission that makes its way through to us is this, God is moving his world from war to worship God is taking us from being a world at war to a world at worship. That's what this day is all about, that he's been looking at. We've already seen Zechariah hint at this, but here in this final orbit, we see it as clear as day. And we get so close that it's actually uncomfortable because we see that first, before we reach the worship part, the war reaches far closer to God's people than we would like. And this is our first point. God is moving this world from war to worship. But the journey is so hard that it will even appear like the battle's lost at times. Look with me again at at chapter 14, starting at verse 1. A day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. We saw that last week. But look at how close to home the war gets in verse 2. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. This has got to be the darkest picture yet of what lies ahead of them. This is real suffering, real loss. The city will be captured. Houses ransacked, women raped, half the people exiled. It's, it's shocking to think that this, this awful picture still lay ahead of them. And imagine how the people in Jerusalem, in Zechariah's day, around 500 BC, imagine how they would have felt to hear this. They've already been through this in 586 BC. They've only just returned from the exile. And yet here they're being told that there's still pain to come. And it makes you think, how much more battering can their faith take before it crumbles completely? Last week, we asked the really important question, when is this day? When is this day that Zechariah is talking about? And last week, we saw that it's the day that Jesus rules as king. Zechariah sees it as as just one day. But we actually get to see it in far more detail than Zechariah does. And so we know that it's actually a day with two halves. It's a day that dawns when Jesus comes and dies on the cross and it's a day that will set when Jesus returns to rule as king over this world which means we stand between the two halves of this day. And so what's pictured here in Zechariah is not something that's just in our future, some of it's already happening. This is exactly what Jesus tells his disciples when they ask him about this day. Look at what he says to them in in Matthew 24, verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when this will happen and and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus tells them that in their time, they'll experience things that show that the second half of the day, his return, they'll experience things in their lives that that will show that that day is not far off. In verse 9, he says, You will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that right from that day there on the Mount of Olives, right through to when he returns, they live in this time of war, which means, of course, so do we. And so, if you follow Jesus, then you should know that that this is a war that reaches far closer than we'd like. It's a war that that even is going to look lost at some point and Jesus tells us very plainly here, it's a war that will batter our faith. Ours is a, a world that's at war with its Creator and we can either line up with God in this war or we can line up against him. There's only two options, there's there's no neutrality in this war, there's no Switzerland. We're all involved in this, whatever side we choose, with God or against him. But we need to know that if we line up with God, then the nations line up against us. We need to know that lining up with God means joining a side that at times is going to look like it's losing. Now there may be some sort of final literal assault against God's people that's worse than anything that's gone before but even right now we're in a world that rejects and opposes God ruling over us and so right now we can't escape this conflict. A few days ago an old lecturer of mine, Michael Jensen, he wrote an article called Are We on the Wrong Side of History? And he he wrote about us Christians, He's, he's a Christian and he wrote we have dated morals We have a worldview that seems embarrassing. We believe in miracles. The church seems to represent a dangerously outmoded vision for human life that would be quaint if it weren't so dangerous. If there's a right side to history, it's hard to see Jesus Christ and his followers have much of a future in it. So hadn't we better get out of the way or quietly accept our irrelevance? We are sometimes few in number. In some places we are being hunted to death. Closer to home, it feels like history is passing us by. We are broken and in many respects, we've failed. What we see here today in the book of Zechariah, in his final orbit, is that yes, we are on the wrong side of history. This world's war against God, it's going to cost us. So much so, that at times, it will even look like the battle's lost. As Christians, it's not strange when we find it hard to line up with God. It's actually strange when we find it easy. We're on the wrong side of this history in this life and and we should know that and, and own it. There's nothing we can do to change that. We stand with God and our world stands against Him and so at times our world will stand against us too. If you're not a Christian, you might find this idea a bit odd though. And in fact, it could even make you angry that Christians would think like this. Why would Christians think that they stand with God and everyone else stands against Him? And, and why would Christians think that people stand against them? And if that's how you're feeling, can I just say that I, I totally get why. But there are at least two reasons why Christians talk in such black and white terms like this, about either being for God or against God? First, it's because we actually know it's true from our own stories, our own experience. We once stood against God, ourselves. We didn't literally fight a battle against Him, but in little ways and in big ways, we really did fight against Him. And second, we talk like this because whether we do see it in our own stories or not, we have come to see that that's how God sees it. Because He says so over and over again in the Bible... Like Jesus says in Matthew 12:30, whoever is not with me is against me. But when it comes to Christians feeling like the world stands against them, actually, I, I think we do get it a bit wrong here. Because uh, while it's undeniably true that Christians in many places are some of the most persecuted and targeted people in the world, we've actually got it exceptionally good here. We don't cop that much for standing with God. And so we we shouldn't exaggerate people taking a stand against us, especially when we deserve it. But at the same time, maybe the reason we don't experience real hard opposition is because we haven't made our stand with God clear enough. We need to be people who are prepared to be battered for our faith. Michael Jensen goes on to say this to us, The risen Jesus calls on us to be faithful witnesses to him, come what may. Our job is not to get with the times, it's to listen to him. We aren't to look fashionable, we're to be faithful. We're on the wrong side of history now, but we won't be forever. And this brings us to our second point. God is moving this world from war to worship And He will intervene at just the right time to bring everything to a glorious end. Look at verse 3 with me again. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as He fights on a day of battle. On that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley." When it looks like all is lost, God enters the battle. He's not indifferent. He's indignant against the nations. He stands on the earth and it's like the earth is torn apart beneath his feet. He fights for his people and he he provides a way for his people to escape. In the past, he split apart the ocean so that they could cross the Red Sea. And here again, he's going to split apart, but this time it'll be the mountains that he splits apart so that they can flee and escape. And then, having fought and won the battle, we read in verse 5, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Do you see that? It would be easy to miss it, but this is what the book of Zechariah has been all about. Then the Lord my God will come. Here it is. God is returning to dwell with his people. And then suddenly with the return of God, the fate of those who were on the wrong side of history will be completely reversed. And in fact, history itself will be overturned and and the whole character of the world will be transformed. As Zachariah's transmission comes to an end, as he gets closer and closer to that day, he floods us with image after image of, of what this day's end will look like. And it's like he raids the whole Old Testament for images and ideas about how good it's going to be. So in verse 6, we see it's a, a day of darkness that God turns to a never-ending day of light. On that day, there'll be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. This is a world being turned upside down a world being recreated it's like genesis 1 let there be light but different because now there's night no longer it's like joshua 6 when when the sun stands still but again different because there's no battle anymore god will bring a never-ending day of light in a world recreated and in verse 8 we see it's no longer a day of battle and death But God will turn it into a never-ending day of life. On that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it east of the Dead Sea and half of it west of the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. Again, this is a world turned upside down, a world recreated. It's like Genesis 2 and the rivers flowing through the Garden of Eden, but different because the river flows from Jerusalem. It's like Ezekiel forty seven, where the river flows from the threshold of the temple, but it's different because the river flows from the whole of Jerusalem. God will bring a never-ending source of life in a world recreated. And in verse 9, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there'll be one Lord, and his name the only name. This is this is a world turned upside down and recreated. Like, it's like Deuteronomy 6 here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But it's different because now the whole earth is hearing and saying this, not just Israel. God will bring a never-ending day in a world recreated to worship Him and worship Him alone. Now, Zechariah, at this point, finishes with images of what a world at worship will look like. So look at verse 10 and 11. And what we see is that the whole of Jerusalem, the whole city will be lifted up, high and and safe and full of people. And then in verse 12 to 14, we see that all opposition to God is going to be completely destroyed. All danger to God's people will disappear. And in verses 16 to 19, we'll see that all people in the world will travel to Jerusalem to worship God. And if they don't, they'll face the same fate as those who fought against God. Now, this picture of the world at worship, it it sounds, when you read Zechariah 14, like reluctant worship, don't you think? It sounds like God will have to bend the world to worship Him against its will. But actually, all human worship of God is, in the first instance, reluctant. Left to ourselves, none of us would worship God in the way that we should, in the way that He deserves. None of us would actually want to worship him if it was just left up to us. We want to worship other things. And until that day that the Holy Spirit shows us the judgment that we deserve and yet the salvation that God has won, none of us can worship God in the way that he wants. See, here's the thing. God bends our knee in worship for our own good, Because unless he's king and and recognized as king by all, we are always going to bring this world down. Worshipping things that are infinitely less than God will always corrupt us and corrupt our world around us. God takes us from a a world gathering for war to be a world gathering for worship. And then finally, Zechariah gives us a strange but fitting picture of what the world will be like. Look at verse 20. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. This sounds really strange. Why is Zechariah, in the closing moments before the end of this book, why is he bothering to tell us about horses wearing bells? The key to understanding this picture is what's inscribed on the bells. Holy to the Lord. That's what was inscribed on pure gold, on a piece of the high priest's highly decorative robes. Have a look right back in their history in Exodus twenty-eight thirty-six, where they were told, make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, holy to the Lord, fasten a blue cord to it and attach it to the turban. But see what Zechariah's seeing here is everyday ordinary horses in Jerusalem, decked out with the same sort of bling that the, the high priest was wearing. And it's not just everyday horses actually here that are now holy or or set apart for the Lord. Even the everyday pots and pans that that are used in your kitchen will become like the sacred bowls that were used in the temple. Every saucepan in in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy. And people from everywhere in the world will will come and and get some of them to take home and to cook with them. It's a really strange picture, but it's a really fitting picture to end Zechariah. Remember, so much of the book of Zechariah has been about their need to rebuild the temple. And what's pictured here is is the holiness of the temple spilling out into all of Jerusalem and to all of Judea and to all the ends of the earth. God's plan is to make the entire world sacred to Him. His plan is one day to make this entire world holy, as holy as the items in the temple, as holy as the high priest's robes. We saw in chapter 3 Joshua clothed with the robes he needed as high priest, it's like the world is going to be clothed with the robes we need. And so effective will the sanctification of the world be that Zechariah finishes like this in verse 20, and on that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. Now, this is not because one nationality in all the world will not be welcome. It's because these people, these Canaanites, who once led God's people astray to idols, will never do it again. Because now they'll be absorbed into God's people. And with that final transmission, the book of Zechariah ends. I said before that we stand in between the the two halves of this day, of this one day that Zechariah is talking about. So what should we do with what he says to us here? And this brings us to our last point. The plan and the character of God move us to ask ourselves, just like it moved them, who are we living for? See, God's at the centre of all things. All the world will one day see that. But we are called to see it now and to live for it now. It's not easy. It's incredibly hard to keep this this vision before our eyes, and to, and to live for God in a world that's often hostile. Over the whole book of Zechariah, we've, we've seen that what this living for God means. Um, right at the beginning, we saw it means turning back to God. Zechariah began with these words, Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. If you've not done that, don't muck around. This is serious stuff. Now is the time to turn back to God and live for Him before it's too late. Over the rest of the book of Zechariah, I've also seen that living for God means being genuine. It's not enough to just appear to be living for God, fasting or feasting, going through the motions. We've seen that God said we really do need to live for Him, which means we need to be committed to honesty and justice and compassion. We've seen that living for God means identifying with God. It means standing up and being counted with Him. We've seen that it means being willing to suffer if necessary for our allegiance to Him and His plans. We've seen that living for God means being ready to welcome in former enemies to come and worship God with us. And we've seen that living for God means just getting on with the simple job at hand. For them that meant just getting on with rebuilding the temple. Even though it was hard, even though it involved sacrifices, that was the practical thing at hand that they needed to do. For us, it means getting on with building God's kingdom by preaching the gospel. Did you know that on the night before he died, Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane? As Jesus stood and and prayed, he knew exactly what was needed to save his people. He knew that to take our world from war to worship, he needed to let the world destroy him, the very one that it should have been worshipping. He knew that to bring eternal light, he needed to be covered in darkness himself. He knew that to let the living waters flow, he had to let his own life be poured out. And he knew that to let his people escape, he himself had to be captured. And he knew to bring about this picture of the world being sanctified, of the temple overflowing, the curtain torn, he had to let his own body be torn in our place. Did you know that after his resurrection, Jesus once more stood on the Mount of Olives? And on that day, he promised he would come back and stand once more on the earth and fight for his people and fight against all those who stand against him but before that day comes he gave us this job to do in acts 1 just before he was taken back up to heaven he said you will receive power when the holy spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth this is the message that we have for the world jesus takes this world from war to worship first by taking our place on the cross and then by calling us to live for him that's our message and yes it's, it's a message that's costly to deliver but it's not supposed to be easy living for Jesus now as you know we've, we've called this year here at t our year of prayer and personal evangelism and if we haven't felt hostility this year yet Then probably we haven't actually evangelized this year yet. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon once preached in 1875. It's incredibly confronting. He said, The fact that Jesus is to come is not a reason for stargazing, but for working in the power of the Holy Ghost. We must have done with daydreams and get to work. God save us from living in comfort while sinners are sinking into hell. Brethren, do something, do something, do something. While committees waste their time over resolutions, do something. While societies and unions are making constitutions, let us win souls. Too often we discuss and discuss and discuss, and Satan laughs in his sleeve. It is time we had done planning and sought something to plan. I pray you, be men of action, all of you. Get to work and quit yourselves like men. Old Suvorov's idea of war is mine, forward and strike, no theory, attack, form column. charge bayonets, plunge into the centre of the enemy. Our one aim is to save sinners and this we are not to talk about but to do in the power of God. Yes, we're on the wrong side of history for now but we won't be on the wrong side for long. Jesus is coming back, and and our job right now is simple. We call people to this Jesus who takes our world from war to worship, and he does it by dying in our place. We too have got a simple, practical job at hand. We live for Jesus, and we call others to do the same. Let's not be a people who just talk about it. Let's do it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the book of Zechariah which has got details which are hard for us to understand and causes us to look hard and to see your powerful message. Lord, help us to be a people who live for you completely, truly and genuinely. Lord, help us to see just what you've done for us in Jesus. Lord, help us to see that in order to save us, he didn't save himself. Lord, help us to see that as he stood and and did battle against all who would oppose us, he did that at the cross, dying so that we might live, transforming this world to worship at immense cost. Lord, help us to be so transformed by what he's done for us that we want to see others come to know this great King, and come to have the same beautiful world promised that we know that is promised to us. Lord, help us not just to talk about it. Help us to get on with the simple job at hand, empowered by your Holy Spirit, to call people to live for you. Lord, we need your help, and we thank you that you give it to us. Amen.